you know, other uh, uh, less, less, uh, less informal churches, uh, what's another way of saying that? More formal churches have more liturgy. Some of you grew up in churches that had a lot of liturgy, a lot of, a lot of uh, standing, knowing when to stand, knowing what to say, when to say. And they have a, a, a holy calendar that they follow. And uh, beginning really after Thanksgiving is the season called Advent. For some of us, that is a tradition that, that we've known and uh, we grew up with and we find a lot of comfort in. For others of us, that's a weird word that maybe it's like the chocolate calendar box that you got as a kid, uh, which my favorite joke came across uh, Facebook yesterday. It's like, according to my advent calendar, there are two days left until Christmas because he ate all the chocolate. Anyway, uh, the, the idea of advent is that uh, you take steps to prepare yourself for the birth of Christ. You take steps to prepare yourself for the coming Lord, that, that, that we're going to celebrate Christmas. And what a strange holiday and what a strange season that we're in, that it's a, it's a, it's a call to not just when it arrives and you wake up Christmas morning and hope you have enough joy, but you spend a month preparing your heart and kind of cultivating it. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I, I would encourage you as, as the month continues that we would continue to cultivate our heart preparing for that. Um, some I don't know when it was found, but they found an inscription uh, that that I wanted to read to you. Uh, in uh, it's it's got a, like a French kind of sounding name, Prien. It's in uh, Western Turkey. It's ancient Roman uh, province, and we'll we'll bring this uh, inscription up right here. Uh, and I've redacted a name because I want to see if we can figure out who this is talking about as as they prepared for a celebration. This is uh, maybe a little hard to read. Can can I can I be candid with you real quick? This is off. Off script. Uh, I, I got here this morning, and my entire sermon was like deleted and missing, and I had to retype some stuff. So if you saw me feverishly typing, that is to say, if there are any typos or if it's hard to read, just blame technology. Uh, this this uh, uh, inscription was found on a pillar in Prien. I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, which is outside Western Turkey, uh, and and this is what it says. You tell me who this is talking about. It says the providence that ordains our whole life has established with zeal and distinction that which is most perfect in our life by bringing us blank. We'll figure out that name in a moment. Sending to us and to those after us a Savior who brought peace, ending war, and brought order to all things. The birth of the God was the beginning of the gospel. So who is this person in the blank? Anybody want to take a guess and yell out a name? It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? We read things uh, like gospel and savior, birth of a God, and we're like, oh, that, that is about Jesus. Funny thing, this actually predates the birth of Jesus. Uh, this is uh, an inscription written about Caesar Augustus. Uh, so, well, boom, magic of, there it is, Augustus. Uh, Caesar Augustus uh, is the second Caesar of Rome. Uh, his stepfather was Julius Caesar and E2 Brutus. You know this story, right? Uh, Julius Caesar was stabbed in the back by his, uh, I don't know what Brutus was. But anyhow, stabbed him in the back. Uh, and then his adopted son, Augustus, he went by the name Octavian at the time, his adopted son becomes the next Caesar of Rome. And as he approaches the end of his life, they were like, how do we commemorate our favorite Caesar, our favorite emperor, the one who brought peace to the whole world? I mean, Rome is like, it's the best thing ever, right? Rome is the biggest thing we've ever seen. And he is the one that we want to celebrate. Let's write this inscription. So they rearranged the calendar. And this inscription 
in Prien is to celebrate the rearranging of the calendar to, to begin at the birth of Augustus. And, and when they talked about it, they said, you know, he is, uh, he brought perfect life. He, he's our savior. He brought peace. He's ended war. He's the birth of a, he's a God. He's the beginning of the gospel. And when we read words like that, we automatically go church in her, our head. All of those words that you see that made you think Jesus, all of those words that you see that make you think church, they were political, powerful words at the time that they were written. So when these gospels were written, what we're going to read today in a moment in Luke 2, uh, when they were written, they were written in an era not where these words already had like churchy sounding meanings. These words had very political meanings and other people have already claimed to be the savior. Other people have already been claimed to be the son of God. Other people have already claimed to bring peace to the world. So I did some research on uh, our boy Augustus Caesar. Um, overall, he's one of the better Caesars of Rome. The next guy, his adopted son, he's kind of a, a, a knucklehead. But uh, this guy, he, he's okay. He brings a lot of good things to Rome. Uh, he's celebrated for bringing morals to Rome, which is kind of ironic considering where they ended up later. But he brought morality to Rome. Uh, some of the words that are used to describe our boy Augustus Caesar in all the different writings is that he's most perfect. Uh, he's filled with virtue, that he was good for all mankind. Oh, here's a picture of him, by the way. I forgot I had a picture in the slides. I love uh, that even, you know, this is 2,000 years ago, that wave that we do when you're at the red light and you see your boy across from the red light, you just say, hey, how you doing? You know, that, that wave was like universal back then. Our boy Caesar Augustus did that. Uh, they called him uh, Savior. They said that he brought peace to the world. If you've heard the historical term Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, uh, it's because this guy, quote unquote, brought it. Now, how did Caesar Augustus bring peace to Rome? This is this will get to the Bible here in a moment. He brought peace to Rome through war. He uh, he had two other guys, uh, Mark Antony, you may remember him. He, he had a thing with Cleopatra. Uh, they fought for power and then they developed an alliance. And as uh, uh, Augustus rose in power, he's like, I need to get rid of all this extra weight. And so uh, he declares war, not on Mark Antony, but then he declares war on Mark Antony's girlfriend, Cleopatra. And so they go to war with Egypt and uh, Mark Antony dies there. They say that he's the birth of a god. In 27 BC, they, they declared him the, the holy exalted one of Rome. Uh, in 12 AD, so 12 years uh, into the new calendar, uh, they declare him the chief priest of the entire world. He is the chief priest. He's the priest of priests. They called him the firstborn of Rome. He's the princeps. He's the son of God. Uh, when they found out that he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and they're like, well, Julius Caesar is our God, so you must be the son of God, so they're going to celebrate him. In fact, if you were to be a soldier, and instated uh, by Augustus, if you're going to be a soldier for this emperor, you would have to go and be baptized to Caesar, uh, denouncing any other religion that you had, and be baptized to the one true God, quote-unquote, Caesar. And they celebrate this with a gospel. Now, I say all that to say this. When we talk this morning about Christmas and the birth of our Savior, when we talk this morning about the birth of the firstborn of God, when we talk about the birth of Jesus and that he's the king of kings and we celebrate him, we're saying that in contradiction to what they were already believing at the time, that this boy, wherever he went, uh, was uh, going to be the best thing since sliced bread. Fun, fun fact, uh, the Roman Empire kind of began uh, one generation before our boy Augustus, but it falls in 476 BC. It has 
about a 500, 550 year run. But then we are going to celebrate the birth of Jesus this morning uh, and, and for the coming weeks. And that kingdom has been kind of ticking along for the last 2,000-ish years. It's, it's going pretty good, right? Uh, still people are coming into the kingdom. When's the last time you saw like a citizen of the Roman Empire like, hey, you know, want to wanna pay tribute to Caesar? Nobody. Nobody, you, you didn't even know who Caesar Augustus was until I brought him up. Yeah, they had inscriptions about him being, quote, the son of God. Why is it that the story of Jesus, the birth of the one true king, why is it that it can stand the test of time? Why is it that that one is holding water? I, I would argue that it's true, uh, while all these others were just flexes to try to seem powerful. If you have your Bible, let's look at uh, some some birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Hmm. Luke chapter 2. Uh, this is, uh, as you know, uh, the, the author of Luke. Uh, you, you may be able to guess this. His name is... Luke, uh, Luke writes uh, as someone who didn't meet Jesus when, before the cross, before Jesus was resurrected. In fact, there's no record of him meeting Jesus after resurrection either. He becomes a Christian later uh, through the preaching of the gospel. And um, he writes as one who is like an investigative reporter. And so the way that you should think about Luke and the book of Acts for that matter is that it's like someone just handed a, a newspaper journalist a task. Go find out everything that you can about Jesus, and I want you to prove your point. And so whenever Luke writes, it's a lot of places and names and dates. Like He's trying to be very specific because he's gone and he's like interviewed everybody and their grandma about who Jesus was. Were you there when, when Jesus was born? I imagine he went and interviewed the shepherd boys who were in the field. I imagine that he went and interviewed the innkeeper. Um, but he gets all of these stories together. And so in Luke chapter 2, uh, we pick up with the birth of Jesus. Jesus. It says this. It says, in those days, a decree went out from who? Ah, Caesar Augustus. Now, I didn't say his dates earlier, but uh, our boy Caesar Augustus, he began uh, as Caesar around uh, 40 BC, uh, and then he dies, if I remember right, AD 12 or so, uh, AD 14. Um, and so he is the Caesar at the birth of Jesus, and then his adopted son is the Caesar uh, when we get to the crucifixion later. Um, but he, he sends out this decree. Caesar Augustus wants to know, I want to know everybody in the world. I need a list of all the names. I want to know everybody I've got in my kingdom. It's a very uh, arrogant way to begin this story. Verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Anybody remember who that is? Of course not. No, uh, you, you don't know who this guy is because, because he's a nobody by our standards. He, he didn't amount to anything. But in the time of writing, when Luke wrote this, this was supposed to be like the hottest thing in Rome. Super powerful guy over all of Syria. Everybody would recognize his name, yet their kingdom has fallen and we've forgotten all of these names. But he was governor over Syria, verse 3, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, uh, if you've been around church more than 10 minutes, all of this is seeming really familiar. You have Joseph, you have Mary, she's pregnant. They're having to travel from wherever they're from to uh, Bethlehem, because that's where the city of David is. Uh, if, if you've watched the TV show, The Chosen, the very last episode of season two has this great like retelling of the story right here. It's very powerful. Uh, I would recommend that you go see it. The, the, the job here 
uh, is that we have to go to this town because this is the town that David is from, and we, we've got to be a part of the registration. And of course, you know all the nativity scenes. Mary's having a difficult time traveling because she is with child. She's pregnant. And it says in verse uh, 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So Jesus has now been born, uh, and we get to this proclamation following. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. They're terrified. You know, uh, a lot of us, we, we this is very confusing for the American church because we think of an angel and we've got like, okay, it's the little guy that sits on my shoulder and I got like the little devil on this side. They're only like three inches tall. There's nothing to be terrified of. Every time an angel of the Lord appears in scripture, the immediate response is like, what is about to happen? Like, is it about to go down? How bad is this going to get? An angel of the Lord. Uh the, the word angel uh, means, means messenger. If you were a politician, if you were Caesar Augustus, and I needed to get a message from here in, in Groves, I needed to get it to, say, Beaumont or something like that, and I hand you the, the message, you become a messenger, an emissary for me. You would be uh, an angel of Caesar running to deliver this. This is, this is the beginning of uh, God making a proclamation. He sends a messenger that apparently terrifies these poor people. Now, uh, these these kids that are uh, shepherds uh, out in the field, uh, I don't know about you, I've always thought of like kind of rugged dudes, like they can handle their own. They probably fight a bear like once a week or something. I don't, I don't know like what they had to do, uh, but they're on the night shift, okay? And so if you are a shepherd on the night shift, you're the younger one. Uh, you don't have to have a lot of intelligence. You don't have to know a lot about the job. All of the like intelligent parts of the job are in the daytime, like where am I going to move them, what herd? The night job is just like, Keep the sheep alive. And, and the angel of the Lord shows up and says, I've got something I want to tell you. And they're terrified because they have no idea what's about to happen. Is God going to bring judgment? Is this, I don't know. Uh, I, I imagine they had to go change some pants after this. Uh, it, they, the glory of the Lord showed around them. That's how, how does that look? Verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not. Hey guys, stop being, stop being scared. Fear not. For behold, check this out, says, I bring you good news. Now, that word good news, if you're not against underlining things in your Bible, if you're not against writing notes in your Bible, that word good news is the word gospel. It is the word euangelion in, in Greek. And so just as Caesar Augustus had his gospel written on the side of a wall, uh, declaring that he is the son of God and that he brings peace to all, this angel is coming. It's like, I've got a different gospel. I have a different euangelion. I have different good news I'm going to bring. I'm going to make a proclamation for you. And this is a good news of great joy that will be for all people. This is not just for Roman citizens. This isn't even just for Jewish people of the day. This is going to be the good news, a political proclamation for all the people. Well, what is it, angel? It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There are three uh, tags that this angel gives to this baby who was born, our, our Jesus, the one that we worship today. They say that he is a, a savior, 
that he's a Christ and that he is the Lord. I want to unpack the political kind of ramifications of that. First of all, um, there's already been several saviors come along. Julius Caesar claimed to be savior, but they killed him. They stabbed him in the back. Augustus Caesar, the Caesar at the time, he has an inscription not far from this location that already declares that he's the savior. And now the angel is saying, no, 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 the real savior, the savior is here. This, this one born to you in the city of David, he's a savior who is Christ. What does it mean to be the Christ? We uh, we grow up in a culture where it's it's Jesus's last name, like it, on his driver's license, it's Jesus Christ. We think Jesus, and then we think Christ that, that it must be his last name. But it is a it is a title. So for Jesus to be the Christ, he is the anointed, promised one of God. Uh, the Hebrew word would be Messiah, which which uh, you may you may have heard. So if you've been with Carpenter's Way uh, for the last uh, six weeks. Here's what this angel just proclaimed. The promised one of God, the one that is anointed, has just shown up, and you're about to go meet him. Well, when was this promise, the angel, uh, the, the shepherds may have thought? Though, well, this is the one that God promised Eve uh, in the garden. This is the one that God promised uh, 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 Seth when, when he was born. This is the one that God promised Abraham. This is the one that God promised Noah. If you've been with us for the last six weeks and we were putting first things first and we're looking at those Old Testament stories, there was always this lingering hope that God hasn't fully fulfilled the finished promise. There was like, and then, and then I'm going to make a great nation out of you, out of you, uh, an offspring, a seed is going to come. When is this going to happen? And the first people to find out about it are like 12 year olds on the side of a hill doing dad's dirty work at the midnight shift. The angel of the Lord shows up and says, there he is. There's the promised one of God. Let me show you just how different this is from every other political movement in the history of mankind. If, if you're Caesar and you have now overcome another nation, the way that you let them know is that you don't go to the poor children on the side of the hill and let them know. You go to their nobles, you go to their rich people, you go to their powerful people, and you say, I've got great news for you. I'm bringing to you a savior. It is me, Caesar Augustus. I am the savior of your people. But they didn't do that. What we even see at the beginning of this is that God's kingdom and God's way of doing things, he even announces his good news to the poorest people on the side of a hill. He doesn't go to the power hungry. So Jesus is the Savior. He's the Christ, the promised one of God, and he is the Lord. Now, this statement by itself is enough to get anybody who says it out loud killed. There is already a Lord in town. His name is Caesar Augustus. It was mentioned in verse 1 up at the very beginning. He is Lord. And if you walk up to someone and say, I don't think that you're Lord anymore. I think that you're Lord. That is a capital punishment in that day. And so the angel is saying to them, uh, I know that the world is telling you to put your hope in the Caesar guy. In fact, I know that the world told you to put your hope in the last Caesar guy. And maybe even after that, the, the world's going to tell you to put your hope in this guy over here. And we're always looking for the guy who's going to bring us out of our, our funk. We're always looking for the guy who's going to bring us the real hope. And the angel of the Lord shows up and says, I've got the guy right here, Jesus. He is the Savior, he is the Christ, and he is the Lord. All right, so how do we know? Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You know, the way that they would prove their strength in that day is that they would say, well, here's a sign to you. Here's the head of your enemy. Uh, here's a sign to you. Here's a, a bajillion pieces of gold. Here's all this power. Here's all this strength. And the way that they spot it, the way that they're told to spot it, is that they find Jesus just lying in a bucket uh, in swaddling clothes. Um, in, in the chosen 
spoiler alert. I mean, but I mean, the story's 2,000 years old, so you probably should know. Uh, in The Chosen, uh, they were showing that uh, Joseph and Mary, they're kind of forced into the inn, or uh, to the, yeah, to the inn where the animals are kept. And uh, Joseph has to uh, uh, clean out the area. And he says, he says to Mary uh, in, in the story, he says that he's going to, you, you make a bed for, for Jesus, and I'll make a bed for you, right? Uh, and so he goes, he's cleaning up the hay, and he's, he, he shows him the background. They never make a comment, but they show him like cleaning out manure and just like getting all this nastiness out of the way. They show like as, as Mary is like making the bed, like the goats are, because like this is the trough that the goats would eat out of. So the goats are coming and like trying to eat the hay out of there and she's pushing the hay away. Like imagine the chaos of that. This is, this is a, a young girl, uh, who is giving birth to her first child in a, a messed up place with smells and mat and just animals everywhere. And there's, there's just chaos. There's chaos everywhere. It doesn't look like this should be the plan of God. And yet the angel is saying, here's how you know that this is God's plan. You're going to go find the baby in the weakest possible, most, most innocent looking phase in a manger, which is a trough, and there's goats, and there's smells, there's all kind of stuff. That's how you're going to know that this is God's chosen one, that he's the king that is going to wipe away all the fear of the world. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel, as soon as they said this, if the kids weren't scared enough, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, all of a sudden, like the choir lights up behind them, and they started singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. The song begins and ends really with, with this declaration of, of peace. The the promise of every political power since the beginning of time, still to this day, is trust us, we'll bring you peace. Vote for this guy, and he'll bring you peace. Uh, Putin is promising peace to Ukraine right now. Caesar promised peace, and they all just murder, and they all kind of go for power. And yet this one king is being born, and he brings real peace. I want to uh, land the plane by drawing kind of two columns in your head. Um, we, have, we have on the one hand, uh, I'm trying to do this from memory because my notes didn't make it, but uh, we have on the one hand, we have the gospel of the kingdom, which is no different than what they did with Caesar, what they do with our politicians today. And then we have on the other hand, this gospel of God, the one that's been being proclaimed right now and the story hasn't changed in the last 2000 years. With the gospel of, of the world and, and our system of thought is, listen, you be strong, you build up your own securities, you by your own might, just protect yourself. And you know, it'll probably work out for you. And, and the gospel of the kingdom says, no, you just surrender your heart to Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of Jesus and all these things will be added to you. The, the kingdoms are very different. Um, the kingdom of, of this world says things like, hey, listen, I need you to fall into place. I need you to play your part. I need you to conform and be the kind of person that I'm telling you to be. You turn on the TV, when you get home in a moment, a commercial is going to come on, 10 commercials are going to come on, and they all have the same message. You are not enough. You're not good enough unless you buy this thing, unless you do this thing, unless you vote for this person. You're just not going to be good enough. And then, and then the gospel of God comes along and says, uh, you know, have, have your mind renewed. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Submit and surrender to me, and I'll put you in a place of value. 
In, in God's church, in the church, followers of Jesus, it's the uniqueness that makes them powerful. That's where our spiritual gifts are used. That's how we're edifying the body. When we come in and we're just a monolith, we're just, we're just a homogenous, everybody looks the same, we're all from the same payment structure, we all vote the same, that, that's what the world says. And, and the kingdom says, no, there's more power in our differences than there are in the same. The, the kingdom of this world is power hungry. It doesn't want to lose power. It doesn't want to let go of power. That's why every politician, uh, is, is constantly, Hey, I've got this great idea. Just, Hey, just give us six months. We're going to vote this thing in and, and it lasts forever. Um, our constitution is built around the fact that we don't want to give too much power to politicians because it's harder to take it away from them than that Putin is saying. He declares to Ukraine, Hey, listen, I'm just going to come in. I'm going to make it peaceful. I'm going to leave. I got a dollar says he doesn't leave because the kingdom of the world is this, that I need power, I'm going to hold on to it. The kingdom of God says this, Philippians 2 says that, that Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but let it go little by little, humbling himself, not just to become being born of man, but humbling himself to be a servant, to die on a cross. Like he, he gave up power in his pursuit of us. Kingdom of the world says, I'm going to hold on power and force you to love me. The kingdom of God says, I'm going to release power and I'm going to humble myself so that by my mercies you may be saved. It's not about strength. It's about this mixture of mercy and justice. The last column is this, is that the kingdom of this world is building into it that your greatest joy, your greatest hope is it's behind you. It's what's already happened. Um, this is why every Christmas becomes harder and harder. I'm convinced of this. We, um, I, I listened to a, a paper or not, I didn't listen to a paper. You don't listen to papers. I listened to somebody talk about a paper that they did a study on nostalgia and then they used Christmas as the, they wanted to know what nostalgia was, but they used Christmas as like the focal point. And they started studying like, you, you may have noticed this, but like if you turn on regular uh, Christmas stations right now, they're playing songs from like the forties, right? Like when's, when's the last time you heard Nat King Cole sing a Christmas song? You're like, really? Somebody needs to update that, right? You don't. Everybody's like, no, we need the Nat King Cole version. We want the old version. We want to hang on to it. We want nostalgia. There's a beauty in that because it reminds us of where we were in Christmases long ago. But, but the problem with the world is that it takes its only hope is what you've already been through. But the hope of the gospel, the hope of the kingdom is that the future, despite our current present day suffering, it's not, here's, here's how uh, Paul says, I'm doing this from memory, but bear with me. Philippians 3, that, that he counts his present, present suffering not worth counting compared to the future glory to be revealed to him who is in Christ Jesus. He says, right now I'm in prison and I'm about to die. And uh, spoiler alert, he actually dies uh, after that. He, he has his head cut off. He was right. He thought he might die. He was right. Uh, they, they did kill him. He said, as he's looking forward to his own death because of who he was in Christ. He says that my present suffering is not worth comparing to the future glory that's about to be revealed to me. The, the kingdom of God says this, that we have a savior who is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's the one true Lord. And when we're followers of him, despite what the world may shovel on top of us, despite what chaos may be around, despite if you're asked to preach a sermon without your notes, despite on if the world goes completely upside down, his kingdom is still intact. You have no hope in Caesar Augustus anymore. He is dead. His kingdom is gone. Nobody's trying to bring it back. Nobody's worshiping Zeus today because he's dead. You know, it's all gone. But the kingdom of Jesus 
has withstood the test of time. He's the only one who's bringing true peace. He's the only one who's bringing true hope. And despite what every other Christmas song says, you know, last Christmas, you gave somebody your heart last Christmas and you're just hoping you won't give it away this time. Yeah, that's all last Christmas. This year though, this year our hope is in the name of Jesus. Like this song we sang at the end, we celebrate what Christ has already done. We celebrate that, that he has won a victory and he is king now. Next week, what I want to look at is like, what are we supposed to do with that? What's our Christmas like? Okay, if, if, if this is our marching orders, what are we supposed to do? We'll look at that next week. I just want to celebrate that the gospel of our king has come. Other gospels have come before him and other gospels have come after him. All of them have failed. But the gospel of our king, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is still intact. You still have a hope in this king. And he is worthy of your praise. I hope that as the uh, the Christmas season ticks on, that peace would be multiplied to you, that you would find moments of hope, that you would remember that despite the chaos, that there is peace. In 490 BC, uh, there was a battle in Marathon. Uh, yeah, uh, Marathon. Uh, as you may know, this is where we get like the idea of running marathons from. The, the way it happened in 490 BC is that the Greeks were going to war against the Persians. Uh, the Persians were the team to beat that year. Uh, the Persians are currently at this moment conquering the entire world in 490 BC. Everybody sees the Persians coming and they think we're not going to be able to stop them. It won't be long before Persia has conquered the entire world. 490 BC, the Greeks rise up against the Persians. They go to battle at Marathon and they win. Despite all the odds, the underdog wins. This is like great, like football moment. The Greeks win in Marathon. But now you have a problem because you have to get the message of the win from this moment in Marathon all the way back to your capital, which just so happens to be the distance of our marathons, 26.2 miles. It's the point two, I think, that gets everybody. Uh, this guy has handed the message. That message was called the Gospel of Marathon. It was the Evangelion. It was the declaration that we have won. And he had to run it all the way back home. 26.2 miles, and he hands it to the leaders in Athens and says, great news, we have victory over the enemy. We have won over Persia. They do not rule us. We are still free. And then homeboy died uh, because he ran 26.2 miles without breaks, and he literally died after he gave him that. The gospel had to travel from that moment of victory 26.2 miles the entire time. I don't know how long the average marathon is. Uh, Wasey, 10 hours? I don't know. Four hours, four or five hours? Okay. Uh, I would have done it in 10. Uh, for, for, for five hours, homeboys running to Athens. For five hours, they were victorious, but Athens didn't know it yet. For five hours, Athens was free citizens, but they thought maybe we're citizens of Persia now. For five hours, they wanted to believe that they would win, but they were afraid that they've already lost and they're going to be brought into slavery. There's this moment, there's this moment between the declaration and the actualization. Um, you and I live in a moment between the gospel being proclaimed and the final installment of Jesus as king. He's already won, uh, and it is our job as messengers to continue sharing that message, and we have to get it out. My prayer for you is peace, the peace that the angels promised those shepherds that day, the peace that only comes from Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, who is our only true hope this year. Put your hope in nothing else, nothing commercial, no other politics, but only in Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray, and then we will watch the queue together.
Father, uh, we come to you this morning and um, just looking at the birth of Jesus, we're thankful. Uh, we're thankful that the stories are kept uh, for us. Um, like Mary and Joseph must have been feeling uh, chaotic in that moment, Lord, we admit that our day-to-day lives are just full of so many ups and downs, so many things that are outside of our control, and we try so hard to hold it together, but um, Lord, we need peace. We need hope. We need, we need to see your victory again. I pray, Lord, that as, as Paul said, that despite his present suffering, he looks forward. May we look forward to the day that, that our hope becomes reality, to the day that, that Christ stands uh, again, comes back again. Uh, and uh, in between now and then, may we declare uh, our hope is in Jesus. May we find peace in his name. May we find relationships restored. And where there's brokenness in this world, uh, may we bring the message of hope, the message of restoration uh, to them. Lord, uh, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.